and welcome to Game Changers with Vicki Abelson. That would be me. And my guest today is Lee Sklar. <laughs> with an audience of, of <laughs> with an audience of one. Lee, you know, the last it hasn't been that long since you and I last spoke. I but know. the world was a completely different place. It's so weird. So and, and so, you know, we have a lot to talk about because I know you have a lot of opinion about it. And I love that about you. And um, if, if you could, if you could sum up your quarantine experience for us, what, how would you, how would you, um, how's it been for you? Um, it's it, well, first off, it's great to be back with you. I wish we were back at your place again, because it was really fun sitting at the table with you. Um, but if this is as, as close as we can get right now, I'm happy to be here. Um, you know, it was one of these situations that I, at the end of February, we had just come off of our band. The immediate family had just done a rock legends cruise and all this stuff. And we had, I remember, by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I remember we were laughing at one of your gigs because Wadi was really afraid to go on the legends cruise. And that was at the very beginning. Remember? Yeah. And we were at that gig, you were doing it at Molly Malone's and we were yeah. talking about, but he wasn't crazy. No, he was, he's, he's was, uh, had a lot of foresight as to what was coming. But um, so at that point, when that finished, I had a full book until February of next year. And overnight it, it all went away. It was, it was like a fart in the wind, you know, it just was gone. And, um, but I sat back and I thought about it and I kind of went, you know, I could either really just get into a funk about all of this stuff or I need to right. figure out some things to do to feel viable. And I've actually been busier than I've ever been. I'm almost too busy right now. Wow. Um, I started a YouTube channel, um, which has gone crazy. Um, in the YouTube channel, I started a clubhouse. So I'm, I'm doing live streaming and one-on-ones with that. Um, our Tell band us a little bit about your, or your YouTube channel because it's so popular. Well, what ha it started because um, I had I, we had just finished Phil Collins's tour. We were out for on and off for about two and a half years. Wow! And I had people writing to me, guys writing to me, especially saying, you know, we saw you guys like at some stadium or something, like because we were doing mostly giant arenas and stadiums on the tour. Right. And they said, you know, we we had a great front of house guys, so they said we could hear you, but we couldn't hear all the minutia details. So what I decided to do was I had them, I had the front of house guy send me uh, a, a show, the board mix from our show in Adelaide, Australia. Uh -huh. and, and so what I did was I would play, I decided to play a song of the, from the show in order every day and record it. So what I did was I have a little Bose speaker that's plugged into my laptop sitting here. And I would play the track through that. And then I have a bass amp on the floor. So I would play my bass parts, but I could put them on top of the track so they could hear everything. And about three, about three songs into it, people started writing, going, we love your YouTube channel. And I said, what are you talking about? I had no idea this was a channel. And <laughs> there was no intention of it being a, a, a channel. I was just playing wow. some songs. And, uh -huh. And then all of a sudden, you know, in, in the past, you know, five months or whatever, since I started it, I've got 133,000 diehard fans on it. And uh, and and so I, I decided to start a clubhouse so people can come to the clubhouse and join it 
and it's cheap. It's like 10 bucks a month to come and I do two live streams for about two to three hours on each one. Wow. And, um, and I just sit and answer questions and talk to people. And then there's like an elite level of it where people pay that. And we do once a month, I'll do like a 15 to 20 minute Skype or FaceTime one-on-ones. Wow. And then I started a swag store. So I'm selling t-shirts and mugs and pictures and it's going great. So that's been going on. Then we're still busy with the, the immediate family. We have our second single coming out and the immediate family is a group of guys basically uh, uh, that have been together for 50 years. Um, it's Danny Korchmar and Russ Kunkel, Wadi Wachtel and myself. And then Steve Postel joined us, who's the new kid on the block, because he's only been around for about 10 years with us. Well, I know, for 35 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we've got that going on. Um, I'm still uh, in the middle of two album projects with Judith Owen that are just amazing. And we're releasing live streams. Lee, you're jumping ahead because we're going to play some music from both of those bands. But it's okay, because we'll we'll circle back around to the immediate Yeah. But, uh, but, but this is what you're doing in pandemic, though. Well, yeah, this is all in pandemic. And then the thing that has been kind of kind of lurking for since not, since 2004, um, <laughs> I've been taking pictures of people going. Yeah. Um, and I have over 11000 photographs. Well, I got together with a guy who has an, uh, an art book publishing company and he does all these. And we are 99.9% .9 finished with the book. Wow. Um, it's, it's, go it's going to print probably next week. And I will have 10,000 books um, delivered to me by the end of November. So Christmas, there's going to be some fun stuff. And I'm going to do different. I'm going to start a Kickstarter now. And um, and there'll be different levels of that where you can pre, you know, you're pre buying the book. Right. Run. But there will be levels for autograph books, books where I'll, I'll be also, you know, doing, you know, including pictures and other things. So it's all turned into this whole. Oh, hold on. <laughs> but you know what? Well, I just want to say, Lee, you talked about the book, and it was just a thought the yeah. last time you were here, which yeah. wasn't that long ago. A year ago, January, I think. Yeah. It wasn't that long ago. And now you've met, you've brought it to fruition, and I think this is the thing, Lee, that I admire most about you is that there are no ideas; there are there are actions. You just yeah. you're you're always in action. Well, I want to feel I want to maintain viability, and this is a period of time where a lot of people are suffering terribly. Yes, um, I, I feel very fortunate that I've worked my ass off for a very long time. And I'm in a situation where I can probably survive this. But there are so many people that are losing their homes. They can't get food, medicine. Uh, I've had, I know friends that have died from this, other friends that are sick. Okay, let's stop there for a second, because that was going to be one of my questions. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people still think this is a hoax. There are Bullshit. a lot of people who Bullshit. still use to wear a mask. They think this is all a democratic hoax. Please speak to, please tell us uh, your experience firsthand with people that have had the virus. Well, you know, the, one of the things is every one of my videos on YouTube, I close out with a shout out to the, to the first responders, which is far more than it's doctors and nurses, teachers, the trash people, the people working at the grocery store, the pharmacy, you name it. Anybody who's still putting Amazon, their- Amazon, yeah, all of them. Any, any, anything like that. 
right. um, I put a shout out to them on every one of them. And mm -hmm. I have so many people writing to me going, these people that deny this stuff should come and spend a day in the hospital oh. and, and, and be there with somebody who's taking their last breath and their family can't even be there for them. The, the horror of all of this, the fact that we have the most incompetent, hateful, repulsive administration in the history of the United States, and the fact that this, I don't even want to use words about him that, that kind of attached to another animal, because everything's better than him. Um, but he, he's, a, he's a creature, and I know this from, from personal uh, action, because my wife's cousin his company was completely ripped off by by this guy. Uh, 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 they did one of his hotels. They did all the hardware in a hotel. And when it came time to be paid, he said, sue me, screw you. And, yeah. they all, and, their, and their company almost had to fold, but they ended up getting like uh, a dime on the dollar. I've heard, they, I've heard he doesn't pay people. Oh, no, he's, he's, a, he's a complete shyster piece of crap. And everybody that he surrounds himself with is another piece of crap. I mean, I'm not going to mince words on this. I just absolutely hate and despise everything about this guy. Mm -hmm. um, but the um, but the fact that they waited so long to even slightly respond, that he politicized this from the beginning when lives could have been being saved, and the fact did, that he denigrates. Did you hear that today? They've, they've announced the CDC, which by the way, I believe is in his pocket. The CDC yeah. is as corrupt as can be. The CDC announced today that they're going to, they're expecting to release vaccines on November 1st. They are completely skipping the third round of testing. They're gonna give it to essential workers, to the elderly, to people with, they're going to murder people. They're going to murder yeah. people. And yeah. you know when it's coming out, Lee? Two days before election day. Yeah. Two days before. Yeah. It, this is so premeditated and so hideous. And, and the thing that we have to understand is we are collateral damage to his quest for power. We are, we are, we are statistics. We are not human beings. And they don't give a rat's ass. When you look at somebody like Stephen Miller, who looks like all he wants to be wearing is an SS uniform. And, he, and he's sitting there, you know, with all the whole thing about putting the kids in cages. Those kids are still rotting in cages and they haven't seen their parents in how long now? It's, it's absolutely so disgusting and so hideous. And I just, the, the next thing, I, the only thing I want to see about that guy is I want to see an obituary and I want to see nobody show up to this guy's state funeral and stuff. But he and his whole family and all the people who in the government who talked about that this guy's crazy and now we're all kissing his butt. It's just beyond comprehension how far we've fallen in this country. Do you believe, I, mean, I, just, <laughs> I read something yesterday that I, I wish I believed, but I don't know that I do, that said that when, Bi when Biden becomes president, he can undo all the damage that's been done. Do, do you believe that that's true? Um, I think there's I think there's a lot he can undo because a lot mm -hmm. of stuff that that has been touted has not been put into policy yet, like all the denigration of the national parks. I would hope they could go back and readdress some of the the judges that have been put in place because that's really scary. I'm I'm praying for Ruth Bader Ginsburg to survive longer. Oh gosh, um, yeah. But but this whole. The whole atmosphere of this adversarial existence that we're in now within this country is so horrifying and so shocking 
But, you know, it's like with Facebook. Uh, the, uh, a while back, I, I posed a question on Facebook. Mm -hmm. All I did was post. I've never called for anybody's death. I've never said his name. I've only I used a swastika. Yeah, I only use a swastika. But I, I, I posed a question and I said, what could have happened in Mitch McConnell's life to make him such a vile and hateful creature? I yeah. think it's a valid question because he's one of the most evil human beings around. Within five minutes, I was blocked for 30 days on Facebook saying that my site was promoting hate and bullying. Okay, let's talk about this because that's not the first time this has happened to you. I'm usually blocked on an average, I'm usually blocked on an average of 150 days a year. For how long has this been going on for the last three years since? Oh, it's been, no, it's it, it, yeah. Well, it's it's really hit hit a stride uh, since he took office because I've been vocal about it. You know, before that, there was really. There were things, you know, certainly, you know, I look at the Obama administration and I'm going to look at that and go, yeah, there were faults in it and stuff. But generally, it was a good administration. You know, things could some things could have been done differently. And, and in hindsight, when you look back at it, you go, that was something that went on then. And now being able to evaluate over a period of time, you go, that wasn't probably the best call you got. But ever since this guy stepped into the White House, it's turned into a toxic cesspool in there. I mean, almost everybody he comes in contact with is a criminal. They're all being held up on, on criminal charges. The minute that his ass is dragged out of the White House, he's going to be facing so many criminal charges. And if they really had any balls, he's going to spend the rest of his life in prison. Okay, like, he's why, a crook. but why? Why? I mean, I thought when he came out before the election and talked about grabbing pussy that he yeah. was one. Why is he Teflon? Why is nothing sticking to him? How, how is this possible? It's it's so hard to comprehend why so many people in Washington are shuddering in their in their boots at this guy. And the fact that there are so, like when I think of women that support him, how full of oh my how full of how much self-loathing can you experience? How can veterans support this guy when he's does nothing for vets. He's a coward. He's never done anything for humanity in his life. It's everything has been to serve himself because he shuddered in his boots, you know, trying to kowtow to his father, who was another monster. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole dynasty of them is all hideous creatures. And uh, and, and the, the sooner they're dispatched, uh, the happier I'll be. I think we'll look at a much better world once these these scumbags are gone. And I just I, I'm hateful of it. And I hate I hate waking up every day angry and pissed off because I was never like this in my life until this guy came into our lives and created an atmosphere of such, you know, divisiveness. And, you know, and I just don't understand why this happened. And I hope it can, I hope it can be fixed. Do you think so? Yes. So hope it can be fixed. Do you have hope that it can be fixed? If I didn't have hope, I wouldn't be sitting here with you. Yeah. You know, Did, you have to you have to have hope, you know, with this stuff. And so today they were saying that the idiot in chief is gaining on Biden to a scary degree. Now, I don't know how much of that press is bullshit and how much is true, but I'm afraid for that election. It's, the thing is, I don't want people to become complacent and think, oh, we got this one. Man, you have got to be diligent until the last vote is counted and until the results are shown. And I'm really hopeful that people, when it comes time to getting your ballots and getting to the voting booth, you get in there and we exterminate this vermin 
that's in there. I don't trust the, the press in terms of, I'm not like him who talks about that they're our enemy, but there's so many different, you know, times that they're doing all kinds of, you know, checking with different people about what they think and all that. It's, it changes every day. And, and certainly, uh, you know, I, I think that his people are loud and vocal, his mm -hmm. base, but they're, they're a minority. They're not the majority. And I think we have to respond with sanity and, and really go at this. Hold on. I'm just turning this Isn't, it Hasn't Joe turned into like such an impressive person? I am so impressed with him. I had, I didn't have strong feeling for him when Paul, when his, when well, his, he, he was always in the shadow of, of Obama, mm -hmm. you know, not not the shadow, but that's the position of vice president is but even the presidential debate. But even the debates, the nominee, the nominating debate, I, I didn't he, I wasn't a big fan. Yeah, he was not my choice. Yeah. Well, I love I, I, I think he's he's doing what has to be done right now because he's trying to bring a level of of intelligence and sanity to, mm -hmm. to the discussion. It'll be interesting to see if they actually have debates. That's what they were talking about today. It looks like they're scheduling them. Well, if, if the schmuck shows up, we'll see what happens. But um, but also, you know, I, I can hardly wait to see Kamala Harris deal with Pence because Pence, Pence to me is like the grown up version of a child from Village of the Damned. This guy, this guy's, a, this guy's an android. He is the most soulless. You look in his eyes and you're looking at death. There's no humanity in this guy. He's the creepiest dude I've ever seen. And and his history with, you know, like trying to teach people not to be gay and all this. I mean, it's just it's unbelievable that these guys, they, you know, they were clearing out the swamp so they could get to the sludge. <laughs> I'm laughing. Yeah. It's not funny. It, no, it, it's it, it, so are you hopeful that this election can be won? I've, well, I've got to be hopeful. I mean, if I thought that he, this is a giveaway to him, I, I might be. I'm never going to look at leaving the country. I've been here my entire life, and I don't, and I talk to friends in England and other and you know other countries, and they go, our, our system's fucked up too. You know, there's like you know we get the, the, the this has really empowered the, the the dregs of humanity having this guy. And so many of these guys, like in Brazil and stuff, they're all looking at him as like if he can do it, I can do it. Um, and then the fact that 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 he's he's still like in bed with Putin, that he's oh. that, that he's he's Putin's bitch. And they said the Russians are in the process right now of, yeah. stealing, of stealing this election. Well, they and haven't it, stopped. I, I don't know. If, absolutely. And I don't know if this has happened to you, but I've been getting a shit ton of friend requests from these people that look American. They have one or two friends. They just joined Facebook. They are totally. They, they they are totally. They're totally Russians. They're yeah. just totally Russians. They're all no, over. It's, it's, I think that 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 factory in Russia has been going since the moment he stepped into office. They haven't let up at all. You know they they've been they've been manipulating press and dealing with Breitbart and and dealing with Fox News and all this. Um, I, I I don't trust the system at all. But I I have to put my trust in that we possibly can get out of this and get this country back on the right track. And and there's so much that's never been on the right track. When you're looking at the Black Lives Matter movement, and all, I mean, people of color and different persuasions have suffered at the hands of this country since day one. Um, there's, when you, when you think about what the indigenous people have mm -hmm. to deal with in this country and you go, 
they're the only non-immigrants. When these people talk about immigrants and this white folks, they're, they're all their lineage is, is just back to Europe or other countries. The only people that were really here from the beginning that greeted them and welcomed them ashore was the indigenous people. And the first thing that they did was they enslaved them and slaughtered them. So, mm-hmm. you know, our history is not anything that's exemplary, but it can be built on. And when I look at the Black Life Movement, I mean, we're right in the middle of this whole movement. And every day there's still some black guy is being killed by the police. It's, I look, we went through this in the 60s and early 70s. We went through this. Like, it's, we've gone back. He's brought, uh, he's turned us back in time. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your stand about, about the violence, about what's going on in Wisconsin? Because this is very controversial. Well, first off, Go ahead. First off it pisses me off because I'm from Milwaukee. No. And, I'm totally, and I'm totally embarrassed uh, to be at, on a certain level from Wisconsin at this point. Mm-hmm. It started with Scott Walker, who was a complete scumbag. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really, it's so sad, but I think that I don't trust what I see. Like, because they, tr- first off, when you have these things happening, there's people that are brought in to infiltrate these movements that foment problems. Absolutely. And, um, when uh, when you're looking at somebody that's getting in his car and gets shot seven times in the back, when you could have just like hit him over the head or shoot the leg or something, if there's really a threat going on. And what kind of threat is somebody's back to you anyway? When there's two cops sitting right there. I don't get it. And but then you've got like this this scumbag kid whose mother brought him across state lines with with an assault rifle. And he's out there acting like a vigilante and he kills people and the cops give him a bottle of water and let him go because he's a white. If he'd been black, he would have been laying in a puddle of blood in the middle of that street. But but with like, you know, when it comes like to the looting and all that, a great deal of that that I think is is set up like where they like in, in L.A. when people were looting here. They, there were corners like in Santa Monica where bricks had been delivered on a pallet. They, they, bring in, they bring in cars of guys dressed in black. I mean, they, yeah. yeah. You know, I, I, the, whole, the whole thing is bad. I think that the movement mm-hmm. uh, by, by the, the heart and core of it is absolutely essential. And I think something has to be done to bring equity to people in this country, be it per, your color, your religion, your sexual persuasion, anything. This is not a Christian white country. This mm-hmm. was found to get away from all of that. Yet it's turned into that one, and then the, the the version of Christianity that that exists now is probably as close to Satan as you could get. I mean, these are the most evil people I can imagine. That they give this guy a pass on everything, and everything he does is anti-humanity, anti what the the uh, tenets of religion are. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I'm just weary of of this. I just I love music. I love playing. I love you know dealing with people on a daily basis in a very positive and, and try to be uplifting and to have this black cloud every day looming over us and gets worse. You, you, every day you think it can't get any worse and then it does. So let's lift the black cloud for right now, Lee, and let's uh, let's give people a little bit of uh, your wonderful music and. Uh, let, let's 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 shift the, fo- the, the the mood here and and the focus and uh, let's go to something lovely and uplift everybody out there. So what are, you, what are you gonna play for us? Well, you know, this this is a funny thing. I hope people can hear it, but I'm gonna just play uh, 
from the last tour we did with Phil Collins. This was from our show in Adelaide, and this is uh, the old Supreme song, Can't Hurry Love. I'm going to play along with a board mix and give me a yay or a nay if it's working for you. I will. I will. Now, th now that would normally in the show, then uh -huh. that one immediately went into Dance Into the Light. We had a whole, we just a little quick segue and then boom, we were off in the next tune. Fantastic. How, how much do you miss being out on and playing in front of people? So much, so much. God. It's, you know, I mean, I sit home every day and I play, you know, doing my YouTube song. I've done one every single day since I started this. I've got like 
200 videos now up on my channel, but there's nothing like, uh, like with the immediate family, we're going to be um, doing another live stream. Uh, with, nice. We're going to do another concert um, in beginning of October, I think October 3rd. And uh, we're going to go out to DW Drums, who have said that we could use their soundstage and, and their tech people. And we're going to we're going to do that. But it's still, you know, you're you're the whole essence of this is playing to people. You know? Right. And, and I, I will do a great show because that's what we do. But right. The idea of, you know, not having anybody in the room with you is just, you know, it's it's like the difference between sitting next to you and and taking you in while we're talking and experiencing you as compared to seeing us on screen. I mean, it's it's great, but there's something about the humanity of when you're making music and hanging and all that stuff that it's just so bizarre that six months ago we lived in a different world, a different planet. So <laughs> Talk about how you've been handling that because you do have you have your wife, you have your dogs. You've now started to. I saw you playing with Judith and with Pedro yeah. recently. You're back playing with the immediate family lot, but I know there was a period when you were pretty much quarantined, like everybody else. Oh, right? I, well, I still am. You know, I mean, I I only leave the house to walk the dogs. Mm -hmm. Or to like go to the supermarket, and I'm masked up and everything. Tell us about your supermarket treks, because you were cracking me up. You were you go like really early, right? You go to the seniors thing. Well, right? I, when it first started, I was yeah. doing. They, they were offering um, senior time, and I'm 73, so you know. I, um, so what I what I did was I went out. I think uh, first one I went to was like at Gelson's, and it was like 7 a.m. You, you could go in from seven to eight. Well, yeah. I went there and I realized they hadn't restocked the shelves. Oh. So you walked around and most of the place, the thing was empty. And I thought, hell, I'm not going to get up and do this again for this. Mm -hmm. Where's the market now? Uh, the Ralph's that's right near me. I go, I run over there and, you know, or go to Trader Joe's. And when I need something, I just mask up and, and they're being, certainly Trader Joe's is being smart about it, where they're really limiting the amount of people that can be in the store at any given time. And there's, mm -hmm. you get in a line and wait in the queue to get in. And uh, but it's just you, you have to get with the program. And every time I like see on the news, like some lunatic at a Walmart screaming at all the, the people who work there because he, they won't let him in without a mask. And he's talking about his rights and all this. And you're just going, you're out of your mind. Uh, this is and I tell people on my YouTube stuff, too, I say, even if you think this is nonsense and a hoax, I said, by going out without a mask, you're making everybody around you uncomfortable. So even if you think it's ridiculous, just put it on for the sake of everybody around you and then take it off when you get home. Sanjay Gupta said yesterday it would take three weeks, three weeks, if everybody would put on a mask, socially distance and not be indoors and in crowds, three weeks and we would be we would flatten the curve. Yeah. Is that too much to ask people? It is. Uh, it, it, in this country, when you have like a, a, a so-called leader who refuses to put on a mask. And, and all that's the, the thing. Yes. He, yeah, it, I mean, this, this is the, and, and keeps saying it's a democratic hoax and all this and it's going to go away. It's just. Well, he calls it the Chinese virus. I want to smack him yeah. every time he says he's that. An, he's, an, he's an imbecile. I mean, that's the real sad thing is he is an imbecile. He can't. I, 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 I have a friend who. Uh, uh, who, I, I won't get in too deep. I have a friend and a friend of his um, was one of the guys who worked uh, as, as an assistant on The Apprentice. 
And his stories are wow. so unbelievable about this guy. It's just incredible. Um, but he is truly, he's an imbecile. I mean, when he would, they, like, when you see side pictures of him, when he's giving a speech, he's got his finger going along. He can't read. He's got to follow the whole thing with his finger like a little kid who's just learned to read. I mean, it's just, but I don't want to go there. I, let's, let's. Well, yeah, we're we're, we're going we're gonna to move on from, from the yeah. idiot. So, okay, so, so when you do get in, so when you are with the immediate family, let's say, yeah. you guys are going to do a lot. How do you honor the, the protocols? Well, what we do is we, number one, trust each other. And none of us have been out. Oh, that it. makes me really nervous. No, 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 no. But, but what, what we're doing is um, we're all wearing masks and everything. We're keeping distance from each other. And the only time the mask comes off is for whoever's singing for that right. song. And right. then we're, 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 you know, a good six feet apart when we're filming this stuff because we're filming it. It's not on stage at a, at a gig. So we can create more distance between ourselves. And as soon as we finish the song, everybody's masked up again and, and keeping distance. But we've also really told each other, look, none of us are out and about with this stuff. Putting I'm actually sorry I made that face because you guys are in each other's bubbles because you're all living according to the rules. So well, we're, li we're living according to the rules and we know what's at stake. Um, right. And, and so we're not going to take a chance on screwing up what we've got going on by doing so. But, you know, the thing that's so frustrating is like every time they try to open a door this much, everybody busts through the door. So what you do is you take one step forward and then you take five steps backwards right. each time. So, and then these idiots that are having these big parties up in Beverly Hills and so you go, and they're calling me their COVID parties. I mean, what's, where's the part, you know, that they might go to that party and they go home and you got a little sister with asthma or your grandparents come over and you can't even go to their funeral. You have to watch it on Zoom. They're saying that Labor Day, they're very concerned about Labor Day because we had huge spikes after Memorial Day yeah. and after the 4th of July. And so, it's going to be so hot. It's going to be 107 on Saturday and Sunday here. I know. They're, they're talking that like by the uh, time you get out to Riverside, it could be about 113. Ah! That's just craziness yeah. right there. Oh I just, it's madness. But the thing is, just there's such a level of selfishness and irresponsibility in communities where I've been going to Japan since 1970. I've been there probably 20 sometimes over, over the years. And, and ever since the first time I stepped off a plane and walked through the airport, I saw people in masks, you know, when they're sick or anything, they put a mask on. It's it, it, it they're looking at the betterment of this community rather than of the betterment of myself. And everything here is all about dig me. It's my rights. It's my life. And you kind of go, this is not really infringing on anything. This isn't like taking away your house or telling you you can't drive your car or anything. It's put a rag over your face when you're in public. And yeah. I love that somebody posted on Facebook the other day. They, they said, what's your problem? Try wearing a bra for a whole day in August. <laughs> you know? You know, I mean, people... Well, that's for the people that complain that they can't breathe through the mess. They've got breathing. You know, doctors, nurses... People in hospitals, they wear those those N95s that you can't, they wear those for 9, 10, yeah. 11, 12 hours. My sister-in-law works for the post office. Mm. And she has to stand at a counter wearing a mask wow. all, all day. I mean, she puts in long days. And there's still people that come up and they're like yelling about their rights and all that. I mean, it's there's this insanity 
that's kind of pervasive in this country that I mean, and, and to me, this is exactly sitting there with gun, you know, discussions and all this stuff. It all comes down to my space, my life and all that. And you go, but what you're doing is hurting the community. And you really need to think outside of yourself once in a while. And, and because if if the community heals, then everything for you heals, too. I mean, all the people that go and go to wish I could go hear live music, but they don't do anything to flatten the curve. And they're never going to hear live music again if we don't get a handle on this because nobody can do a show. I mean, it's but not going to let's start at the top or in this case, the bottom, as you said, they're watching their leader walking around as if it doesn't exist, having rallies where people are on top of each other. Yeah. So. If I, only if only if only those people got sick. I'm fine if you if you do something stupid and get sick, but the fact that they become toxic and they can infect people who are trying and care. And I might be totally wrong. Ultimately, who knows? There might be a thing that comes out in a couple of years where they've really had time and go, you know, we really didn't need that. And in the same way, like they're doing the testing and the original testing was like these sticks way up your nose to get like the sinus. And now right. they're getting these ones where you can do it with like just a drop of saliva. Yeah. If things will evolve. I think this is a serious disease that the world has not seen in, in, in a good hundred years. Mm -hmm. And and it's not like Ebola where you, you could look at, at a locale and mm -hmm. say, we have to contain this. This is a, every, every corner. They're finding this disease in like remote villages that hardly get anybody comes to them. Right. So there's, there's something so insidious about this. And to be treating it in such a flippant and cavalier way by these people, um, and they're in there and you know that they're being tested in the White House and the government constantly. They're getting the best treatment and the best stuff going on, even though they deny it all. My doctor said yesterday that all of the tests are bullshit. He said the amount of false positive and negative of the COVID testing and the antibody testing, he said that the numbers are completely out of whack. There is absolutely no way to know what the real numbers are. Well, well, and also the fact is that you can test negative mm -hmm. and then next day bump into somebody and okay. you're going to get it. So, I mean, it's you would have to be tested on a daily basis. To but even I have people that were tested two, three times while they were in full-blown COVID. They never tested positively or they didn't test positively until weeks, months yeah. after they got sick. We just don't know. We don't know what this is all about. And the yeah. idea that they think they're going to have a vaccine, basically what it is that you're just lab rats and they're just trying to placate people by acting. And there's going to be a lot of people who are going to have terrible Two days before the election. I mean, if that is not the most obvious thing in the world. How much stuff is obvious that goes on with this administration that is so obviously being used as a ploy mm -hmm. and people sit there going, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, uh, the guy I'm doing my book with, um, yeah, he, he printed this up. Wait, make it make. Oh, God. You know, I mean, it's just it's it's it's. So, oh, you want to see something cool? Yeah. I have a dummy mock up of my book. It, yes, there's, no, there's no pictures. Or anything, but let me show you how substantial this is. It's right yes, here. Please. We're going to talk about how you started to do that, Lee. I know we've talked about it before, but we've got some new audience with us this time. So this is the book. 
it's substantial. Oh my God. I mean, it is, it's really high end stuff, uh, paper and the cover is padded. This is a padded cover on it. And when you open this up, the first, the first page, second page, and this interior page uh, and the, on the front and back are plastered with, with hundreds of pictures of people giving me the finger. And, um, and I'll give you a teaser right now. Nobody, okay. else has heard, nobody else has heard this. The title of the book is Everybody Loves Me. Oh, I love it. Lee, tell us how, tell everybody out there how you, why you started this finger thing. How did the, the photographs with the fingers start? Okay, when, when I was on the road with Phil, I'm um, trying to center myself. It's well, like we were talking about, it's so weird, this office. I know. It's, it's, um, it's when we were doing the first final farewell tour in 2004 with Phil the Collins, first there, was, there was word that Phil was probably going to retire after this after this tour and we had probably a hundred okay, we, we have light on your face um let's well no i don't want you to sit so far back um hold on okay. let me let All me right. hold on. okay good see it see if, if that helps a little bit the perfect let me fluff and fold <laughs> here maybe let, let me let me uh, Um, your mask is fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. Pretty, pretty goofy. Um, so in 2004, uh, when there was there was the word that he might retire at that point, um, I thought I may never see a lot of these people again because we had crew from all over the world. I mean, we had like a hundred crew people, and so wow. so I thought you know I'm going to just take pictures of everybody and make a little folder for my computer, and later on in years I could go back and look at it and have memories. Um, I had a base tech practically for the first time in my career on that tour. Normally, I always did my own gear on road on the road and stuff. So this this guy Steve Winstead called his nickname was Chinner. Um, he was sitting working on his laptop, and he's the first guy I walked up to, and I said, "Hey, Chinner, give me a smile." And he just went. He's sitting like this, and he goes. <laughs> and I took the picture and I looked at it, and I went, "Well, that's actually pretty cool." So I went around and got everybody on the tour: Phil, his manager, the truck drivers, bus drivers, caterers, band, all the tech people. And I had this like 120 photographs of people giving me the finger, put it away. Um, didn't think about anything really about it. Then a couple of years later, I went on the road with Toto and I kind of went, oh, it'd be fun to do that again. So I got everybody there and it got up to about 350 pictures and kind of took on a life of its own. So I just started I'd go up to people on the street, say, flip me off. I'd be on an airplane. I'd get the whole compartment. I'd get the pilot and co-pilot to flip me off. Um, all the artists. I've tell, us, tell us the youngest person. The youngest. Well, actually, the youngest. I didn't put the picture in because I'm only putting pictures in I took. Yes. But the, the youngest actual finger I have is a uh, ultrasound. <laughs> I love that so much. This friend of mine, um, Chris Caswell. Um, he sent me his his daughter. They did an ultrasound of the baby, and all you see is a little hand going like that. <laughs> How is that even possible? Well, you know, this is a motor thing. I've got a whole section of babies in the book, and there's lots of. I mean, I've, I've got friends that have sent me pictures of their baby nursing, and the baby's sitting there sucking, going like that. It's this. It doesn't mean anything, right. ultimately. Um, so the youngest I have is I have little babies. And then we had a, a, a friend of ours, aunt, Auntie Al. Uh, I think when I took her picture, she was 102. Oh, 
so she's the oldest one but it's it's kind of everybody but the thing i find the most fascinating with the book is there's like a half a dozen ways of doing this but the faces are infinite and when you look through this the, the expressions on people's faces are fantastic and i've got you know just people like winos i find like laying in the street but i've got like jack nicholson and gwyneth paltrow and and, and herb alpert and you know um uh, burt Bacharach and hal david i mean it's like there's everybody but i would do the nam trade shows and i and everybody comes running up to me going <coughs> you know they so somehow i became synonymous with this and people for years have been saying are you ever going to do a book and had it been not for this pandemic, I probably never would have because I'd be busy. Oh, right. You wouldn't have had the time. Yeah. And now I've got the time and I'm trying to look at every day as a um, as an uplifting, valuable day to do things. And that's why I love the uh, YouTube channel. And now my my next pro project is to uh, launch a Kickstarter program for the book because it's a real expensive proposition to do this. How much can you... Like, I would imagine the book has to be pricey because um, I'm, tr I'm trying to keep the book at 60 bucks. OK, that's doable. I think that's real. Too. I mean, I've seen like le much lesser books for well over a hundred dollars in, in this kind of quality, too. So mm -hmm. I'm going to try to keep it there. And on the Kickstarter, I'm, tr I'm figuring out different levels where it'll be a basic one where you're just buying the book in advance and, and you'll get it. But then there'll be a. The next level of it will be autographed and then there could be one where it's personalized to you and then i'll have one where i might you know include a, a, a signed picture i'm trying to suss this all out now because i'm really in uncharted territory in the same in the same way that i've never recorded music at home uh, ever i've never had a home studio everybody i know has home studios yeah. so when i needed to do something i would say uh, let's get together. I'll do it at your place, and then let's go get something to eat, kind of thing. Right but now, now I can't do that um, because right. everybody's kind of quarantined. So right. uh, this friend of mine, Gussie Miller, contacted me, and he said that he and and three of his friends were going to do a cover of Easy Lover, and he said, "Would you play on it?" And I said, "Well, I'd love to, except I don't, I don't have any. I'm not set up for recording." And he said, "Well, hold on." And he has a friend at SSL. And next thing I know, they, he sent me over an SSL 2 plus interface. And so I would call like Steve Postel or John Gilliton. And I pulled up GarageBand and we set it up. And I've been doing a bunch of bass parts for people now. And and we did the Easy Lover and I put it on my uh, YouTube channel. And we've had about 220,000 hits. All right. I hate to do this to you, Lee, because I know we talked about you closing out the show with it. But you can't talk about Easy Lover and then not play it. Oh, OK. okay. We got to hear it. Well, this this is from the same show of uh, of the last tour with Phil Collins. So let's see if this all works here. This is his son Nicholas playing drums uh, on it. Let's oh no, kidding! Oh yeah, you've played this for me. You've played him for me yeah. before. Amazing.
Lee is is that isolating the bass like that you know the bass is something that unless you're a sophisticated listener and you know what to listen for it's it's the bottom of the song but you're not really aware of what's happening yeah. I love isolating your genius and well, uh, it's the bass part <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's terrific uh, it's and I want to give shout outs too that was uh, it was Amy Keys and Arnold McCuller were the two background singers singing with Phil doing their leads on it. It was a real shtick live, you know, when they did it and stuff. It was pretty cute. But um, Nicholas Collins was playing drums on the tour. And when we started the tour, he was 16 years old. Ah. And, here he's, and he's playing like he's like a complete pro playing like 80,000 seat stadiums. And he's like, this comes out. And he was a really good drummer when he was four. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, he got Phil's genetics down. Like, I mean, it was really something. And he didn't get the gig because he's Phil's kid. He earned the gig. You know, I mean, Phil was the open door for him to come in. But uh, but Phil, like after we played with Nick, he said, so what do you guys think? Think this is good? Rather than saying, no, you're going to play with my kid and you got some. <laughs> yeah. Right. So he, he and he got over the two and a half years we were on the road. He improved so dramatically and he started great, but he's really going to be a force to be reckoned with. 
as a drummer. He's got his own band in Miami where they live and stuff. And uh, he's great. He's a sweetheart of a kid. I really adore him. What do you think of, of Ringo's son playing with the who? I mean, he is no slouch either. Yeah. Well, you know, the, all these guys, I mean, it's really wonderful. I mean, it's like when we were, uh, when we were looking for a drummer with Phil, Jason Bonham came down and auditioned because he lives right near Phil and he came down and, you know, and, but it's always funny. People say, Oh yeah, it's a Bonham's kid. You know, you're kind of, when you hear the word kid, you think like 18, but the guy's like 50. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, um, but yeah. you know, I love, I love all these guys. I mean, for me, the, one of the greatest things was watching Russ Kunkel's son, Nathaniel, uh, evolve because Nathaniel turned into be one of the greatest engineers in the music business. Wow. And, um, and he's, and it was always weird to be in the studio doing like a Crosby Nash record or something. And he would be engineering it and to hear him go, Hey dad, could you go around the toms one more time? <laughs> this is I've known him since he was born. This is so weird. Um, but it's all, all these people, you know, there's like these second and third generations coming along and some of them totally assimilated, you know, like with Nick, he was sitting on the side of the stage since he was born, listening to Genesis and Phil. Wow. And, and he, he sucked it up like a sponge. And, uh, and there's no ego. I mean, at one point on the tour, I said to him, if I had ever had a son, I said, I would want him to be like you. Aww. He's really that kind of a kid, really just one of those special people, you know. So let's, uh, we're going to be out of order here, but tell us how you came to play with Phil. How did that relationship start? Well, I was aware, I was aware of Phil um, through, um, through Genesis, not certainly as a solo artist, because he hadn't really started when I, when I worked with him. Um, we ended up playing on a track on a Lee Rittenauer album, I think around 1980 or so. And Phil called, and he called me and he said, would you uh, go on the road with me? And I said, oh, I wish I could, but I was already committed to a James Taylor tour at that point in 1981. And that was when he was doing his face value tour. Uh -huh. um, but I said, man, I would love to work with you someday. And in 84, he called me again. He said, would you come and do my the No Jacket Required album? Uh, we I flew to London and um, we did that at Townhouse Studios. And the funniest part of that was we were at the staying at the Royal Garden Hotel um, in Kensington High Street next to Hyde Park. And the first day I got my bass in a gig bag and I go get in the elevator and then the door opens in the next floor and this guy gets in with a guitar. And we kind of said hello. And I said, so what are you doing over here? And he goes, well, I'm, I'm working on a Phil Collins album. And I said, wow, me too. And I said, where are you from? He goes, Milwaukee. And I said, oh, no. me too. Daryl Sturmer has lived in Milwaukee his whole life. And he's like the king of Milwaukee music scene. Um, and he's been there, you know, forever. And we became immediately fast road friends and everything. And we talk to each other all the time. And that's the hardest part about these things ending is you become this incredible family together. And when the tour ends, everybody kind of scatters off and, uh, it's an effort to stay in touch with everybody. Um, it's it's really hard because everybody goes on with the other things, and uh, but I've been you know I, I stay in touch with Phil and kind of like a couple of nights a week, I play this show. I may never play these songs again in my life, but I enjoy playing them enough where it gives me a chance just to keep my chops up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I do that. I play the immediate family music and I play Judas stuff. Okay, so let's talk about both of those projects because. Yeah, those are current and they're happening. And you and I have talked a lot about your past. We're going to go back and talk a little bit about the past too. But yeah, how, so the immediate family has a lot of history. You have a lot of history with Russ and with Danny. So tell the session. So how, 
how did you guys come together initially and and then how did you reform well the the original band with james taylor was danny korchmar mm -hmm. myself russ kunkel and carol king was the original band. carol was the piano player in mm -hmm. the group but nobody knew who carol was they people knew of goffin and king Right, the great songwriting team, and wrote uh -huh. things like the locomotion and all that kind of stuff. But um, I'm gonna set my bass down here for a sec. By the way, she says the next time you play a song, she wants you to use your resist bass. I don't know if Lee's got it handy, so uh, it's 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 in the other side of the house. Yeah, um, but um, and and when we started working, like our first gig at the Troubadour. Uh, mm -hmm. After that, James started talking to Carol and just saying, you know, it would be great for you to come out and do some songs in the beginning of the set, introduce yourself to the to the people. And then the next thing we know, she goes in the studio and cuts tapestry. Ah. You know, so so now we have a side person in the band who has like the biggest record in the world. Oh, my but, God. So she she left James at that point because she had to pursue her own thing. Mm -hmm. And I was doing an album project at A&M Records uh, with Tom Jans and Mimi Farina. Mimi Farina was Joan Baez's uh, younger sister. And they were this great folk duo. And uh, in doing that album, there was a keyboard player on, on the dates named Craig Durge. And I contacted Peter Asher, who was handling James Taylor. Uh -huh. uh, I said, I think I found somebody to, re you know, to take Carol's place uh, at this point. So um, Craig came down and, and they loved him and he joined in and it was so it was Cooch and myself and Russ and Craig. Mm -hmm. Well, when we were on the road with James, James, a lot of times really he would do a line check and then he had other things he wanted to do. So he would split and we wanted to play. So we would just jam. And um, um, Peter had a partner at that time, Nat Weiss. Now, Nat Weiss, I think was partnered with Brian Epstein. I think he was fun, you know, instrumental in getting the Beatles to America, but he was a divorce attorney in New York, mm -hmm. but he, he dabbled in this. And one night he said, you guys got to check this, this out. And he played us a tape and we said, God, that's great. What is that? He goes, that was your sound check. <laughs> we were just jamming, you know, we were just jamming, but he said, you guys should really seriously think about, you know, maybe doing this. And, uh, and Peter went and got us a record deal with Warner brothers and I think they were horrified when they when they finally heard us because we were a rock fusion instrumental group. And I think because of the people we had worked with, they thought they were going to get like Poco or the Eagles or something. <laughs> like that. Um, so we were like a cult band. We did two albums with Warner Brothers and then we did an album with uh, Capitol at that point. And, and the thing that was fun was we would go on the road with James Taylor or Jackson Brown, like we did Running on Empty with Jackson. And we were the opening act. So we would go out and play our kind of rock fusion show. And there was always the diehard freak audience, you know, who were like totally into the band. And a lot of people didn't get it, but um, <laughs> but, but finally towards the end of the seventies, we, we were just working at it and nothing was happening. So we kind of just, just went on our way at that point. And, we, and it's funny, I go to Tokyo and I can go into, there's still Tower Records there and I can wow. walk in and, and there's still like a display of our albums. Wow. There. So, so, you know, look, you know, all these years later, uh, Danny Korchmar ended up getting a record deal with a company called Vivid Records in, in Japan. Mm -hmm. So when it came time to do his album, he decided to call me and Russ and Wadi, who had come into James's fold and all that after you, Wadi was never in the section. 
um, but but he was a part of James's touring band and all that. And Waddy's you know gone on to be like Stevie Nicks's MD and Ronstadt and all these people. I mean, he he and I met. He I was the first guy in that group he met. We were doing a um, Bobby Womack record, and uh, and we became like immediate friends. And we're four days apart in age. He's, <laughs> for four days, I can say you're older than me. You know, <laughs> um, but. Um, so we ended up all being available to do Danny's record. And Danny at that point had befriended Steve Postel. They live right near each other and they started hanging out and stuff. And um, so when we, Jackson Brown gave us his studio to use and Nico Bolas engineered it and we went in and did Cooch's record. And, and then we went to Japan and toured and, and promoted it. And Danny ended up calling it, he, they said, what's the title of the album? And he said, well, let's just call it Danny Korchmar and the Immediate Family, because we really are an immediate family to, to each other. I mean, it's literally been um, 50 plus years now that we've worked together. And, um, and, and, and so- after see you in Japan. Were they for, uh, fans from- From, from everything, from everything. Um, mm -hmm. When we did like after the shows, like at the Blue Note or, you know, Billboard Live, mm -hmm. there would be like a meet and greet afterwards. And the meet and greet was longer than the show. <laughs> uh, I mean, people were lined up around the blocks to get pictures wow. and autographs and stuff. And we actually were invited to a club and we walked into the club and the club owner almost had a heart attack. Everything in the club was dedicated to us. I mean, every album we've ever worked on was on the walls, the ceiling and everything. And this guy was like, he was freaking out. And it was so, I wanted to hang, but it was like so much smoke from smokers in the club that I just, I, I gave him a hug and said, I'm out of here, you know, and, and, and went out. But um, so we, we, we fulfilled the obligation um, for Danny's album. So at this point, then he said, well, look at now we're just the immediate family because it's not my deal. It's our deal now. And we just finished a new album for Vivid Records that's been released in Japan. But we also are now signed uh, with a, an American label called Quarto Valley Records. And um, we, our album is going to be coming out with them uh, early in next year. We, we've got an EP coming out. Our second single and video is coming out. And Denny Tedesco, who made the, the Wrecking Crew movie, is doing a documentary film about the immediate family. I wanted to ask you what happened because the last time we talked, he was about to go to Sundance with it. And yeah. I know he went because I was in contact with him. Yeah. Did, but Sundance didn't operate the way it was intended to operate. So was he able to do what he went there to do? I, th I think they did. Um, Greg, who's one of the producers of it, they went up there. And I think um, Wadi and Wadi and Cooch, I think might have gone with them. I, I was, I was, I think I was out with Phil, so I couldn't, I couldn't do it. Mm -hmm. um, but I, they made the connections they needed to make, and there's some other things going on now that are actually potentially better than possibly a documentary film. It's a longer term thing, so oh. they're, they're they're juggling some really interesting proposals that have come in. But they're still working on it every day. They've got a ton of interviews that they've done. Talk to us a little bit about some of the interviews that you well, they they talked to James Taylor, they talked to Carol King, they talked to um, uh, Peter Asher, they talked to Jackson Brown, they talked to Phil Hello? Collins, 
Um, all these people, um, Billy Bob Thornton came down because he loves the band and he wanted to be interviewed for it. Um, so they've got a, a wealth of that. We've been personally interviewed. We're waiting to do a roundtable interview where we can all share stories and that'll be really the fun part. They've got footage of the gigs we did like at the Iridium in New York and a lot of, and they have a forensic person going through and finding all kinds of archival footage and, um, and wow. old, old photographs. So I think it's going to be great. And, and it was cool with Denny because I love the Wrecking Crew movie. I love the people in the Wrecking Crew. I worked with all of those guys. Um, and, uh, but Denny, it was interesting. He said, look at the Wrecking Crew really kind of existed for about 12 years. And he said, they never left the studio. They would do all the records, everybody's records. Maybe Hal Blaine might go to Vegas and play right. with Sinatra or somebody like that. And he would get a marquee billing and everything out of it. But right. he said, you know, the, the difference is that, that we've been together for 50 years. Um, we not only played on, on all these records, but a lot of them, we wrote the songs, produced them and toured with the artists. So he said, it's a very different thing. So it's not like Wrecking Crew 2. Right. Uh, this is a very, very uh, different thing. And we're all totally, we were totally blown away when they came to us and said, you know, we'd love to do this you know, movie about you guys. Because uh, the thing that's fun with the band, and I think that's the most important thing, is it's not a band resting on its past laurels. Um, the new music is, is as good as we've ever done. Uh, the new album is... I've heard it. I can attest. It's really, it's really going to be great. Um, and I'm, I'm so excited about getting it out. And the frustrating thing is like we were hauling ass, running full speed ahead, and then the pandemic hit. So, you know, suddenly you're bam, right into a wall. Um, but it hasn't stopped us. So we've been doing like these acapella videos, um, doing the, the, the real videos for the singles and stuff. And they're really, Cruel Twist was really fun, but the new one uh, for Slipping and Sliding looks like some kind of a David Lynch movie. Uh, I mean, it's really dark and and kind of weird. It's wonderful. It's just so atmospheric. And uh, and so we're progressing. You know, we're ready. Right, I'll just stop you again because we have a we have an immediate family song in the, in the hopper for you to for you to play for us. Okay, well, it'll be it's an it's one from Danny's record. Um cuz our new stuff is not available yet. Let give me one second. But, but this one this one is from the album called Danny Kush Danny Korshmar and the Danny Korshmar and the Immediate Family and it's a song that he co-wrote with Don Henley. Uh, so let me excuse me excuse me while I whips this out. <laughs> All right. Um, this is great. This is uh we'll see how how it works here. It's got a long long guitar intro. Here we go. show I think no it isn't this is the album
Yeah, I th I thought that was it was going to be the album cut, but that was actually from the uh, the Blue Note in Tokyo on the first tour we did. <laughs> wow, you know, Lee, let's talk a little bit about your artistry now that we've gotten another little taste of it. I I know that bass was not your first instrument. Tell tell us a little bit about how music came into your life. Well, it, it's this is really the weirdest convoluted story. When I was a little kid, my parents would watch the Liberace TV show. It's um, my boy. <laughs> uh, it was, it was, and I would watch it with them. Oh. And I was enamored with him, uh, the whole, you know, the panache of him you know, the, with his candelabra and his brother George would come out and play violin. And he was a really, for all the shtick, he was really fine pianist. Mm. Um, so I, uh, we had a piano, we had a baby grand piano in the house. And I started. Did your parents play? My mom played a little bit, um, mm -hmm. but it was like a family piano. It had been passed down. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, uh, I started taking lessons and I had an affinity for it. And by the time I was seven, I had won like a, this big award from the Hollywood Bowl Association about like the most accomplished young pianist in LA. And um, I met Eugene Normandy, who was the conductor of the Philadelphia Orchestra, one of the great conductors. But I'll tell you, by the time I was 12, I was completely toast with it. I was under a lot of pressure because I think I had a, a teacher, Mrs. McBurney, who um, uh, I think was living out her lack of success in her endeavors as a pianist through me. So I was like learning all these pieces every month and doing all these recitals. And I was really stressed. You know, but it, nobody really saw it except me. Were you, were you able to be a kid at the same time? Were you keeping up with Yeah, for pretty much. Like, were you playing with kids and? Oh yeah, yeah. No, no. We we were out playing hide and seek and all that that crap. And but but it was just one of these things that when I went into junior high school, uh, when I went, I grew up in the valley in Van Nuys and went to Birmingham out there in the valley. When I arrived, it, 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 at that time, it was a six-year school. It was a junior high and high school. You had the same teachers for, for all six years. Mm -hmm. um, the music teacher, Ted Lind, uh, when I arrived in the music department, I kind of thought I'd be the pianist for him. And he said, we got lots of kids that play piano. We need a string bass player. And he pulled out an old K upright out of the back room, and, and I held it and plucked a note, and I felt that vibration, and I said, I'm good with this. And he gave me some rudimentary lessons on, on bass. And I just stuck with it at that point. I, I had some, some additional teachers as time went on. And then eventually um, my father took me down to Stein on Vine, which was at that time part of the musicians union and bought me an, an amp and an electric bass, a little St. George amp and a melody bass. And because I was having trouble, I was trying to be in bands, but upright, I was just bleeding everywhere because I was fighting drums and guitars and stuff. Um, so that was kind of it. And that set me on a course for the, for the rest of my life. But it was piano was the first thing. And the thing that I really enjoy almost the most was when I met James Taylor, I was mm -hmm. going to Cal State Northridge, either CSUN or Valley State College at the time. Mm -hmm. I was studying to be a, a, maybe a technical or a medical illustrator. Oh, wow. So let me show you something real quick. This is yeah. going to be, I'm putting the, these are going to be going up in my, my gift shop on my thing. This, I'm doing nice. a, limited, a limited edition. This is one of my drawings. Hold on. 
So everybody, Lee is going to do some show and tell because he's in his house. He can actually run and go get it. Oh, my God. Oh, my. Lee, get out of here. Oh, my. Wow. And you can see the size, the size of it. It's, it's huge. Yeah. I, I, I'm, do, do you still do this? Do you? I haven't in a long time because, you know, I kind of thought at this point in my life, I would be kind of out to pasture. <laughs> you know, let me just put this back. I'll show you. Okay. Wow. You too could own a Lee Sklar original. Wow. Are you going to lith lithograph them, uh, Lee? Are you going to make copies? Um, I'm going to do a, a on that one. I'm going to do a limited edition oh, right. signed number. Right, right, right. Another, an old wow. payday bar. Wow. The light, light in here is crap. Um, wait, oh, wait. Okay, Jim B. Oh, the the reflection makes it hard to see. The reflection's really hideous. Oh. It's about yeah. the label coming off, kind of, right? Wow. Yeah, the label's coming. That's you, you, wow! It's your precision. Your it looks like a photograph. Yeah, I love doing this. This is really what my intention was when I met James Taylor. I really never thought I was going to be hitting the road, and you know, we did one gig, and I thought that was it. And it's st I'm still on that gig <laughs> fifty years later. What did you think you were going to do with with that? Well, I mean, I had really thought about e either working as a technical or a medical illustrator. Because I really, I really tell us what that means. Um, well, you would just be like doing, you know, like copying things for medical books, organs, and all that stuff. Or technically, you know, you would just be doing things of, you know, cars or airplanes or buildings and things like that. But I always loved like hyper realism um, art, and that's and the thing that's fun is the guy I'm doing the finger book with. His his company. This is what they they do books, and he's got so much great stuff that that he's turned out. So it's pretty exciting. I mean, all of this stuff. But I've I've always when I was when I went to Valley State, mm -hmm. I started in the music department and ended up hating it um, because Why? what they were really doing was trying to encourage you to be a teacher, mm -hmm. and I wanted I just wanted to play. And it was really funny. The uh, there were two string bass players in the orchestra. It was me and uh, Daryl Dragon, who was the captain of Captain and Tennille. <laughs> and I was in I was in a band in 1967, 68. Uh -huh. Little John Farm with his brothers Doug and Dennis Dragon. Um, they were they played drums in, in B3 organ with a guy named Steve Auberg, who was the guitar player. And the we, the band was called Little John Farm because Steve grew up on a Little John Farm in Texas, and uh, it was a great band. And Dennis and Doug were great. I think Dennis ended up forming Butthole Surfers, which was a big band. Yeah. So there's there's all these weird things. And the thing that get getting back to one of the weird things about when so I was watching the Liberace show, and that's what brought me to music. Uh -huh. Many uh, uh, many many years later. I was inducted into the Wisconsin Musicians Hall of Fame. Well, Liberace's also from Milwaukee, and yeah. he and he's in the Musicians Hall of Fame. So after all those years, I ended up sharing, you know, a spot in the in the Hall of Fame with with uh, Liberace. So it's it's the weirdest world. It's just I don't I don't get it. You know, I just get up every day and try to have an adventure with it.
I assume that you didn't get to meet him before he passed. No, no, it, it would have been fun. My dad actually had a swimming pool cleaning service and he did some work on Liberace's piano shaped pool. Wow. Um, so he, he got, he got close to him, but um, I didn't, but you know, I, I, lo I loved him, you know, and you know, I mean, there certainly wouldn't have been Elton John if it hadn't been for Liberace. I think that's a really valid point. So, okay, so go back to James. So yeah. Um, how, how, so, how did you you how did you meet James? Well, I was in this band in late 68, 69 called Wolfgang. Mm -hmm. And we were managed by Bill Graham, was one of our managers. Wow. And Bill Graham's name was Wolfgang, his real name. So we named the band after him. I did um, not just know. what a better way to suck up to your manager than to name your band after him. Um, <laughs> so um, Bill Graham Fillmore East, Fillmore West, that yeah. Bill Graham? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, one of the, the greatest music industry entrepreneurs ever. Yeah. Um, so we had this band, and the band was a great band. It was still probably the, one of the best bands I've ever been in. And I and I've still been in touch with a couple of the guys. One of one of the guys, um, Bugs, the drummer, <clears throat> his name was Warren Pemberton, and he actually he was English. He came over. He was in Jackie Lomax and the Undertakers, who were rivals of the Beatles back in in the day in England. Um, and Jackie Lomax was like a gorgeous movie star guy. I mean, he was like one of those beautiful guys. And Bugs was really great, too. Well, Bugs had a friend um, who came to our rehearsal um, uh, who owned, um, his name was John Fishbeck. And John owned Crystal Recording Studios in Hollywood. And he did all of early Stevie Wonder's records. He did songs in the key of life and all that. Um, and John brought a friend of his to a, one of the rehearsals. We had a house, a band house up in um, Sunland, off of Wheatland up on Sunland. And um, so he brought a friend of his to a rehearsal and it was James Taylor. He had just come back from England. His first album was coming out and uh, and he played us some tunes. And we were like a cross between like maybe the Allman Brothers and Zeppelin and, oh, and, and Hendrix. I mean, we were a hard rock band. Uh-huh. It was two lead guitars, B3, our singer, uh, Rick Lancelot. He was in the original cast of Hair. Wow. And just, he sounded like if you took Sam and Dave and all these people in, you know, of that ilk and rolled them into one guy, it was this guy. He was amazing. Wow. He's, he's, he's died many years ago. Mm. But um, so we ended up, you know, having a great hang with James and that was it. I never didn't see him again, but a couple of months later, apparently he got offered a gig at the Troubadour and they needed to put a band together. They, they had, they knew Cooch because Cooch and James were childhood friends from Martha's Vineyard. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then uh, James had met Russ through John Stewart, I believe. And, um, but they needed a bass player and James said, I, I know the guy we got a call. He said, I saw him up and they tracked me down and invited me to play this gig in the, at the Troubadour. And I figured it would be one gig. And then I was still at going to Valley State at that point. Um, and um, so it was a situation that we did the gig and everything went great. Then he got offered a month on the road to do like field houses back east. And I'd never been on the I'd never been on the road. I, I mean, our band. What's a field house gig? Uh, it's like, you know, playing like the, the gymnasium, like at a college or something like that. But they would have these big field houses that like a lot of the East Coast colleges had these things. But um, with Wolfgang, the, we had only rehearsed. We only really the first gig we ever played as a band, the first time we ever walked on stage 
as a unit. Mm-hmm. We opened for Zeppelin at Winterland. You know, that's the most ridiculous story in the world. Tell us yeah. how, how did that happen? Well, it's because Bill Graham was our manager. It was his show and he put us on and he said, you got, we tore that, we tore it up. The band was so good. Um, did did it, the audience give you guys a break? Did they listen? Oh yeah, no, they were totally into it. The band was strong. The band, I, I've got nine demos that we cut. Wow. Uh, and they're really, really still, they, they stand up right now, so strong. Mm-hmm. And I and I love love this whole thing. But, you know, once again, you know, time moves on and things don't happen and you have to move on. So we ended up getting offered this gig with James to go out for a month. And I just walked out of college, never told anybody I was leaving. I'd been there five years and just left and never got my degree or anything. I was like, I had like 250 units, but I didn't take like a child's um, a child's art class or something, but but I left the music department after two years and took an aptitude test up at the um, at the offices and my highest aptitude was in art and science, so I, I became a science art co majors and that's where like the technical med- medical illustrating and all that stuff came in because I love science I'm a science freak so um, you just don't know you know these 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 things come in your life in different curves and. You have to commit to something. And I was fortunate that James was the guy at that point in time. I mean, he changed the music scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the, the advent of the singer-songwriter mm-hmm. came on the scene. And suddenly, uh, and the fortunate thing for us was Peter Asher insisted that our names appear on his album. Because no. like the, the the Wrecking Crew, nobody knew who they I mean, they'd be listening yes. to Mama's and Papa's The Association, Frank Sinatra, Tijuana Brett, same people on all those records, but nobody right. knew it. Right. So P- Peter put our names on James's record. And all of a sudden, when guys like Jackson and people like that were being signed, they would look at James's album as like the benchmark for what everybody was aspiring to. Wow. And, and they saw me and Russ and Cooch and on it. So they would call us. And literally, uh, when I went in the studio, I had only cut these couple of demos with with Wolfgang I had no studio chops whatsoever and all of a sudden we were the in-demand guys so we were learning right on the job the first record I actually did before I recorded with James was Brian Highland being produced by Del Shannon and Brian Highland did Itsy Bitsy Teensy Weensy Yellow Polka Dot Bikini and um, and somebody came to me in Japan when we were there and they had the album wanted me to sign it and I had never even seen it and Del so Shannon. They would bring you guys in together in this session. Yeah, you as a unit. They, they, yeah, they really started hiring us as a unit. Mm-hmm. Um, this was before the section actually was the section, but mm-hmm. they, they would call us. And, and, and for some reason, what we did just locked perfectly for this. And, uh, and so we were there, got to be there at the forefront of an entire new movement in music. And it's not the stuff that the, the wrecking crew would have liked to play. They were a much different kind of musicians, the kind of projects they did, not to sit and work with a singer songwriter and develop parts. They came in to base, you know, charts and coming up with their ideas on the spot, but it was a different kind of music and a different scene that they did. So we so we were kind of like the baton was being passed to the next generation of guys. And we were the guys that it was being handed to. And uh, that just gave me chills because it's kind of, Denny is kind of doing the progression of this going from them to you guys that's that's a fascinating hook right there and and one the beauty of it too is i got to do so much work with his dad 
Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I, I, Tommy was one of my favorite people to be with, Hal and Tommy and Mike Melvoin and Larry Nectel and all these guys. Me, I worked with them all the time. Wow. And, and Tommy was just one of the, the greatest musicians I've ever known. So it was so wonderful when Denny, you know, honored his father's memory with the, with that movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's really wonderful. It's great. He's a he's a beautiful cat. A real, a really I love cool it. Guy. I'm very curious what this uh, what this documentary is turning that you alluded to what it's turning into but I'll, I'll wait to get the news with oh me me too babe i don't know what the hell is going okay so let's talk about how okay so so james changed your life yeah um what what happened after james you were with james for a long time well i was with james for 20 years um i did everything from 70 to 90 pretty much with him. And there was a couple little incidents, like he did an album. He did Walking Man back in New York with David Spinoza and some of the guys in New York. But then we went on the road and gigged all the music. We were on the road every year. I mean, he he was one of those artists. He could have no product out and go out and set all the records at all the big outdoor sheds for the summer because of the shows that we put on. They were so good and people were so loyal to him. And uh, so it was re- it was really wonderful. But in uh, in 19- nineteen, do you have any favorites of of those 20 years? Are there any gigs that you did with him that like really stand out as? Um, you know, probably one of the most it was very, very, very early on in everything was probably when we played Carnegie Hall because coming up as a classical musician, uh, because all my piano was classical. I wasn't into anything else. Um, And the idea of stepping onto the stage in Carnegie Hall, it was a double-edged sword kind of a thing because we were going in there with amplifiers and stuff. And it's probably acoustically one of the greatest rooms in the world. Um, But we had our, our stuff turned down to like almost nothing, but it was, James and Carol and me and Russ. And then we had the Brecker brothers with yeah. us and Barry Rogers playing trombone. And it was it was one of those things where you just you feel the weight of history when you walk in. It's like going to Capitol Records and you walk down the halls to the studio and there's pictures of Sinatra and Sammy Davis and Keeley Smith and, and, you know, Judy Garland and Nat King Cole. And you realize those people all walked that hall and walked into that studio you're walking into. So there's a weight of history that sits on your shoulders. Did your parents get to come see you do any of this stuff? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my folks passed away. My mom passed away a little over a year ago, I guess, or so. Right. They lived into their 90s. So, you know, it's like you know, when we played up, they they, they ended up living uh, eventually in, in um, Spokane, Washington. But they spent many, many years down in Guadalajara and Lake Chapala. They lived in Mexico. But mm-hmm. when we played up in um, Spokane with Toto, they came to the show and Luke was all over my mom. She would always say to me, how's my boyfriend? <laughs> Luke is just the most wonderfully incorrigible guy in the world. And um, it was really fun, but they got to, they got to see certain things. But I have amazing memories with them. Like we used to go every summer. They would take uh, me and my sister to Gershwin night at the Hollywood Bowl. And it was an evening of Gershwin. And one of the times we were there, they were right in the middle of Concerto and F and the orchestra stopped playing and all walked out to the front of the stage. And everybody looked up and Sputnik went over. It was the first first satellite in the history of mankind. Wow. And so everybody said, you saw this little silver dot just go over the horizon line. And then they went and sat down and continued the song. 
but nobody wanted to miss this moment. They knew this was going to be the trajectory. So that was, that was pretty cool. And I have a lot of memories with the, the bowl because I, I was an usher there when the Beatles played there. So I got to hear the Beatles live. Stop. Yeah. I mean, they, I had the year before I had applied to be an usher and they didn't need any. So I, I didn't get the gig. Mm -hmm. Then um, when the Beatles were going to play there, I was a Beatles freak. So I immediately. The Beatles impact you as a musician. Was that part of. Oh, massive. Life changing. Life changing. Mm -hmm. and, and still to this point, mm -hmm. um, Paul's. I mean, everything about them is amazing. Um, but Paul's playing always just for me was a benchmark as a melodic bass player. Um, but um, so I, I, I sent for tickets to go see them. And they were sold out. They said, sorry. But then I get a, a letter in the mail. I mean, I'm just still a kid at this point, I'm a teenager. And they right. said, we're, we have a special concert coming up and we need extra ushers for it. And it turned out to be the Beatles. So I I got paid $5 to go see the Beatles. And, <laughs> and, and then they kept me on for the whole season. So I got to see Jimi Hendrix there oh. with um, Vanilla Fudge opening. Um, there was like the Love and Spoonful and the Mamas and Papas and the Beach oh Boys, the, the, the Ravi Shankar India Festival, all these things. So it was a it was a magical a magical season. But to see the Beatles, well, I think the, 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 all the lights went off in the bowl and Real Don Steele, the DJ, came out from the wings and said, "Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles." You could have been on the surface of the sun that was so bright from flash bulbs going off for the entire show and oh, screaming. I was going to say, was it all that screaming? Could it was you all that screaming, but I just, I abandoned my position and I went down close to the stage so I could hear them. And, and the thing that was funny was I met Paul in 1990 when we played Nebworth with Phil Collins and Genesis and all these other artists and he was playing on and I told him about that. I was an usher there because he thought that was the funniest thing in the world. Because when we played Nebworth, I went, um, it, it was one of these things. It's a huge festival. Mm -hmm. And it was like um, Elton and Clapton and Page and Plant, um, Pink Floyd, wow. uh, McCartney, Genesis, Phil. It was all these acts in one day. And I walked into the cafeteria area and Paul was sitting there with Linda eating and and i start and i go i gotta go say something to this dude i just have to and i start walking towards the table and he looks up and he goes wow lee sklar i always wanted to meet you and i did said don't do this to me oh, don't this i said i'm gonna, i was gonna go break some glass to put on the ground so i could crawl through it and you know and go see <laughs> and uh, and we've bumped into each other a number of times since then and oh it's great to see him and uh but you know i owe so much uh of how I think about music to those guys. I mean, they were really, and I, and one of the fun things I did a gig at the um, Madison Square Garden. It was the 75th birthday of John Lennon, and there were all these different acts on it. And I got to be in the house band, me and Kenny Aronoff, and a couple of the folks from Letterman's band and stuff. And it was great, you know, just to sit there and just and right above my head was a giant sign that said "Imagine" and. Uh, I was going to ask you about playing the garden for the first time. That has to be a trip. Well, all all of those those kind of venues, you know, when you, when you're used to playing a club, mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden, the first time you walk into one of those kind of venues, it's, well, what it's was like, your what was your first? Do you remember? Well, it was probably. It's it's actually hard to say because the first would have been on a James Taylor tour, 
and mm -hmm. it would just depend how the tour was laid out because most of the tour would have been those kind of venues. So I don't really remember which one was the first, but then you go up to that other level, like we played the first Rock and Rio Festival and there was about 300,000 people at that. And we did a free concert in Central Park with James and they estimated close to a million people were at the gig, you know, with delay units all through the park and stuff. But the worst part of that was Mayor Koch was was there and um, uh, oh God, um, hold on one second, I'm blanking. Um, oh Jesus, um, what's her name? She was, oh, Gloria Vanderbilt. So Gloria Vanderbilt was one of the um, supporters of it. And it was during her kind of a kabuki period where she wore like white makeup and all this stuff. And, and we're standing backstage and Leroy Kerr, who was one of the uh, Shoko guys, one of the Texas crew, he comes walking by and he looks over and he goes, who's the mummy? Oh, and we're sitting there with her and Koch and all these people were going, oh man, Leroy, thank you. you know, it's like, it was a funny moment. But, um, you know, but to me, you know, no matter how big the venues are, ultimately you're playing to a club because the people you can actually see and make contact with are about the amount of people that would be in a, in a you know, a, a nice club, you know, maybe a hundred people. Uh, and, uh, and that to me is, is what it's all about. The rest of it becomes like a patchwork quilt of mm. colors and textures. But it was funny, I, with Judith Owen, we were doing some gigs in the north. We were doing an English tour, but we were up in the north of England, up in the Lakes region. Mm -hmm. And we played a pub and it was like 40 people in the pub and this couple of guys came up and said, man, last time I saw you was in Wembley Stadium. What are you doing here? I said, I'm playing music. Are you having a good time? They said, yeah. I said, then great. That's what it's about. I, okay. you know, the, the business people will look at it and go, the difference between playing a pub in Wembley, they're looking at, at the dollars and cents of that. To me, right. I enjoy them both equally. I love a club. I love when you can, you can smell and taste the audience. They're right there. Um, it was funny. I did a, a, a when I did Billy Cobham's album Spectrum, which is still one of the um, most influential classic albums of that jazz fusion period. Um, he we only did we did the whole album in like two days, and we were done. And I ne we never played again. Then he called me in two thousand three and said, "It's the thirtieth anniversary of it. You want to go gig." And so we, we, we put together, uh, Jan Hammer couldn't do it. So Gary Husband did it and Tommy Boland was no longer alive at that point. So um, Dean Brown did it. So it was the four of us with Billy Cobham. And it was funny, we were in upstate New York playing like in Syracuse or Schenectady or someplace. Mm -hmm. And it was a small club. And I looked down in front of me and there's a guy in the front row watching me play with binoculars. <laughs> I'm thinking, what the hell is this guy thinking? I mean, is he like wanting to see what my nose hair does or my cuticles or, you know, but he's. That's so the whole, So weird. But, you know, like with Phil's tour that we just finished, like we, it was amazing. Everybody counted him out because he's had physical problems. He has to walk with a cane. When we did the shows, he had, had to sit on a stool for the whole show because he's got this bad leg condition. Yet we go over. And in South America, in Europe, and in Australia, we're doing all stadiums. And I mean, he's still in great voice. Right? Yeah, he, I mean, they want to hear the songs, they want to see him. The band's great. So, but you know, I mean, I'm sitting there looking at this guy who's 
is isn't this young guy strapping guy running around the stage huh? right. Yet he's, he's still selling like seventy five thousand tickets and they said oh we could have done another night here you know it's it's remarkable um and and it just goes to show this is really this is a magic industry and that's the heartbreak of what's going on now is the fact that everybody is is primed to get out there and work and they want to and and especially i really feel for young bands mm. that this is how you this is how you develop is gigging and they right. and for them not to be able to go out and and hip an audience to them and and hone their craft rather than just sitting around and maybe not together you know because so many people are doing like their acapella videos and all these, right. these kind of things it's really bad. I, I mean, I'm looking at like kids that are graduating from Berkeley and MI in Hollywood, and they've got all this facility and ability and hunger, and there's nothing for them right now. Well, the only thing is, Lee, there is the internet. And I have to say, people are being really creative, like you. I agree. With your YouTube channel. And a lot of stuff is coming out of this that's really extraordinary. Yeah. And communities are being built online because it's the only way we have to connect. We have yeah. the crazies every day we meet. There are musical communities that are happening. Oh, it's, it's amazing some of the stuff that's there. The real problem, the only problem I see with any of it is mm -hmm. is the, the inability to be together and play. Yes. I mean, and some people are trying to do some distance stuff like we did that with the immediate family where we did our video, you know, we, we shot our um, right. live stream concert, but there's just something about getting in a in a bus loading up your gear and hitting the road and and having 50 gigs in a row you know and just being out working it and and having the meet and greets and meeting everybody say, it's the thing after the gig where you're talking yeah. to people and seeing the love and yeah that's that's the hard part that they're missing i i'm seeing you know like i'm an insomniac i just hardly ever sleep so like i'll be up sometimes all night watching youtube and find discovering things and and finding all kinds of really interesting artists on it. And to me, the talent's out there. I'm not, I'm not at all concerned about the future of music from the standpoint of artists. I'm Are there any young artists that excite you that you're, that you're into and checking out these days? Anybody I'll tell you, one of, one of my favorite artists, Okay. Um, and I keep talking about her all the time, her name is Rebecca Johnson, mm -hmm. and she's in, in Australia. Okay. And they've got they've got a, they mostly work as a trio. She's one of the baddest ass bass players I've ever heard, and sings her butt off. Wow. And they and it's her and this guitar and drums. And they end up all their videos are like outside of like a restaurant, you know, in a parking lot and stuff. And we've become friends. I write to her. She writes to me. And she, you know, and she's she's a beast. She is wow. so so talented. And every time I get a chance to like hustle her. Um, on YouTube and stuff on my channel, I talk about it and people are going, oh man, thanks for turning us on to Rebecca. She's unbelievable. Um, she is seriously badass. Um, but, but there's a whole bunch of, you know, different kinds of things I'm finding in, you know, third, you know, you know, third world music. And mm -hmm. um, it's really, fa it's a fascinating world. I mean, I think YouTube's really fantastic. And I'm sometimes totally shocked if I pull myself up and I see stuff on there and I kind of go, who is filming that? <laughs> I don't remember ever seeing a camera in that room, yet they're in the studio where we're recording and stuff. So it's it's very strange, you know, I mean, some of the content that's there, but I love it. And and like the people that have come to my channel, 
they've said, God, I just, I'm going to be so sad when the pandemic's over. Um, and I said, absolutely don't be, because I'm never going to stop this. When this is over, all it's going to do is allow me to extend my, my YouTube uh, to take it on the road with me to, you know, I, I would love to be sitting like we're doing right now, sitting in, in but have like Fred Wallachy, who owned Westwood Music, um, who was one of the great watering holes of, of the L.A. music scene, to be able to sit here with Fred and, and talk while people are watching. And, you know, they can watch and then make comments and stuff or, you know, go film our, our sound checks. And I, I posted some stuff from Judas House the other day. Let's talk about Judith now that we that we got here because she's come up a few times. How did you meet Judith and how did that relationship start? Um, I've been friends with her. her she's married to Harry Shearer, who is one of the guys in Spinal Tap, and he does a lot of the voices on The Simpsons. And he had an NPR show. He's a brilliant, brilliant, smart uh, satirist and uh and um, so I, I had been working with, with Harry, who did some videos. He did an album called The End of the Bushman about the Bush administration. And we ended up going up to do a place. It was either Jazz Alley or Blues Alley. I can't remember the name of this place up in uh, Seattle. And we played a gig and he said, you know, my wife's going to sit in on a couple of tunes. And I had seen Judith, but I had no idea what she did. And all uh -huh. of a sudden she comes out and sits down at the piano. And I go, are you kidding me? And she <laughs> tore it up. And, and for people that don't know, Judith Owen is Welsh. Um, she grew up in London, but her father was a, 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 a tenor with the Covent Garden Opera. And she grew up around all these opera singers and stuff. And she is a force of nature, a force to be reckoned with um, as far as her talent goes as a songwriter, as a singer, as a pianist. Um, she's amazing. So when we did that gig, I, I suddenly knew what this was all about. And she, she told me, she said, look, when I was growing up in England, uh, we would have family outings and we'd all be in, she and her sister, Sue, and her, and her folks, and they would be out driving in the country and singing along to James Taylor on the radio and stuff. So she had an idea to do an album. She had already done like 12 albums at this point, but she, she wanted to do an album that she called Ebon Flow. And it was a tribute, her kind of homage to that period of, of singer-songwriter. Mm. And we went into Sunset Sound Studios in Hollywood and cut old school. She had asked me, she said, do you think like Russ or Waddy or any of those guys would ever consider working with me? I said, I'll call them. And they said, of course, we'd love to. So we went in with Lenny Castro playing percussion, Waddy, Russ, and myself and her. And she would sit at the piano play the song, we'd sketch out some kind of chart going in. Usually within the first or second take, we would get the song. Wow. And then we took it on the road, the, 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 except for Lenny. He was out with Toto. Um, but Russ and, um, and um, Wadi and I went on the road with her. And, and it was great. And then eventually, um, she brought in Pedro Segundo to play percussion, who's, you know, he's a, he's a, a true gift, too. He was um, with us a couple weeks ago. Pedro. Yeah, I know. I know. I saw it. It was great. Um, and, and he's from uh, Portugal, he's from Lisbon. And, and he is, he always says, Judith always says, I'm her favorite lesbian. <laughs> um, but um, so we've, we, but Judith and I really connected musically. I mean, we connected as friends immediately, but there's something that she and I have that's really unique. So we've done all kinds of gigs and it's fun with Judith because she's, you know, uh, like James Taylor. 
she could go out on a stage and just play piano and sing and do a complete show. Um, right. She could go out with, with just Pedro and her and do a show. She can go with me and her and do a show. She can go with me and Pedro and her and do a show. Then we have a string section of Gabriella Swallow, um, uh, Megan Cassidy and Lizzie Ball from London, violin, viola and cello. Uh -huh. And we've done gigs with them. And so with Judas Music, you can kind of do anything. But we're in the studio now and she's doing an uh, almost it's going to be a musical. I think this will see the stage. Wow. And it's, and, and it's a it, it's it's all about the women in Picasso's life. And it is some wow. of the best writing I've ever heard. She's wow. writing unbelievable songs for this this production and then we're also in the middle of doing like a pop album with her and she's slowly releasing um singles off of it until we get this thing all finished she i heard one the other night it was fantastic um what, what you prepared something to do for us from judith which of these oh. projects is it from uh let me Excuse me while I work yeah. this out. Yeah, <laughs> take, take, take your focus and, and do yeah, I got to I got to clear clear my palette here of all this nonsense I've got here, and and pull Judith up. Um, I was thinking we went together. We were in Germany, mm -hmm. and 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 we spent an afternoon walking around the remainder of the Berlin Wall. Um, and it's a, it's a long section that they've that they've set up, and it's all graffiti and all. I mean, it's really a, an incredibly moving experience to go see this and realize what this meant. And we got back to her place in London, and uh -huh. I sat and I sat down, um, had my bass with me, and she has a beautiful piano in her living room, and I, I just started doing this. She ended up sitting at the piano and writing a song about it. So the song is called Ariane, and this is this is how it goes. I have traveled, I have wandered, pondered on the cruelty. I see all around So much heartache So much sadness Love and some forgiveness When you put the baton down Arian Why don't you fix it all
about it it's a beautiful song the lyrics are fabulous it's a brilliant piece of music but your bass playing hey we haven't even talked about that um well so again it's, it's a dirty job but somebody's got to do it it's you're just you're just extraordinary uh, thank you the gift is you know i know you were a protege as a kid on piano but what you what you do with the bass um, is unparalleled. It's you are one of a kind, um, just a gift, an absolute gift. As you are as a human being. I just we've been talking for two hours, and I could sit here with you all night long, and it would. It, I it, love it. I love it. It would just. Uh, it, it, we could go on forever. I. I am so grateful. Thank you. You know, you had written to me a few weeks ago and said, "Hey, we could do it again." And then it just so happened that rumor wasn't able to do tonight. And yeah. Oh, rumor, rumor was going to do it. Yeah, I, I worked with rumor uh, a few a number of years back. She's great. She's amazing. She's yeah. a good friend, and she's an amazing singer songwriter. Oh, that's cool. And um, and she will be with us in October. But um, yeah. but you just jumped right in there, and you had a thing at with with. Nam, were you doing a Nam? Yeah, we did. We did a, a panel. It was me and Jim Keltner and um, Liberty Devito and and Steve Lukather, Phil. Um, can't remember his last name. He's, he's uh, in the legal side of it, and Dom Familiaro. Um, so it's going to be one of these things that goes archivally in, into the to the Nam thing because there's no Nam show this coming year. So oh, no. yeah, so they're putting together all kinds of you know online stuff for people, and this is just we were talking about what we've all been doing during this. This period, because this is really the challenge right mm -hmm. now, is how to maintain viability and and enthusiasm and um, interest in, in in life during a period. I mean, I like like I said before. I mean, I I feel very fortunate that I, I'm kind of uh, in, in that position in life where I I I can I can wait this out, um, but. 
there's so many people that are losing homes that don't know, you know, where their next meal is going to be coming from that are, you know, scared shitless about what the future holds. And so I'm just, I think it's just trying to do something positive every day that people can escape. And that's what the touring was about. You know, I mean, somebody could have the worst day of their life, come to a concert and at least for a couple hours, just take a deep breath and decompress from what could have been a really bad day. And, and I always love when people write to me and they go, God, your music's like the, you know, it's, it's the soundtrack of my life. And, and you realize these songs mean marriage, divorce, births, deaths, every, I mean, a, a song, it's like smelling a clover that you, you lived near when you were a little kid and suddenly you smell that and you suddenly, you're that kid again for a moment. Oh, yes. The first kiss, the first everything. Yeah, you're part of all of that, those memories for so many people. So, um, so, so trying to keep that that momentum going through all this is really the challenge at this point. I think you've done it actually brilliantly. I, I don't know anybody that I can think of that has, Judith is very prolific through this, absolutely. Yeah. She's been turning out a lot of music and, and she goes yeah. a lot and that's wonderful. And I, I think people are going to be hungrier to see you guys than ever have yeah. gotten to really know, because I think people are getting to know you in a more profound way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I've had people that write to me all the time going, man, I've seen you on stage for over the decades and stuff. You know, I was like, oh, so that, that wild guy with the beard kind of thing. And, they're, and now they're acting like, you know, they're sitting when I'm doing my videos, they feel like we're in the living room together chatting. And they're all going, yeah, I wish you were my grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, it's so sweet. I've got people sending me pictures literally of their family eating dinner, watching my videos on TV. Aww. It's, it's really, it's really cool. But, and it's also really nice to, to, like you said, to lay the groundwork so that when maybe this opens up, this will turn people on to something that they wouldn't have found before. And they come out in the same way. I'm using all these platforms to talk about, my Kickstarter when I get that going and, and the, uh, and the book, because I want the book to be like the guy I'm doing the book with, we sit there and we're just laughing when we're looking at it. Cause it's so much fun to look at all these pictures of people. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going, we're going, this is the time we need this. People need to have uplifting fun things to, to do because the, you're faced every day in the media with just, you know, doom and gloom. And uh, Okay, so let's talk again before we go. Let's, yeah. let's tell everybody how they can find all your things. Okay, so now you dropped the title here. And of course, because I was in the moment, I don't remember. Tell us the title of the book. Well, it, 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 it's, I think it's going to be Everybody Loves Me. <laughs> and it's all this, which is hysterical. And it's all pictures of people giving me the finger. And uh and, okay. it, and it's beautiful. I mean, I got a great shot of my parents in there giving me the finger and stuff. So it's uh, it's it's all good, you know. It's 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 going to be fun. And that people can expect that book in approximately. I, well, I, I'm anticipating that. Uh, I mean, uh, my the guy I'm doing it with just kind of laid it on me today that I'm going to have to be prepared because I'm going to be having a delivery of ten thousand books, <laughs> and it's almost like a forty foot container because it's a big book and a big box that it comes in. So I'm going to have to go down and look at renting a, uh, a storage unit um, that I can stash it all. Cause I'm going to be doing all my own labeling and taking to the post office and all that. Cause I don't know anybody that, that I can hire to do that and that I would trust. So, um, but it'll uh, supposedly I'll have them in hand by the end of November, which means they'll be the perfect Christmas gift. And maybe I'll dress as Santa and do a, do a QVC type video to put on. <laughs> 
love it. I love. Okay, so now how can people? You haven't started the Kickstarter yet, but how can people? Find where to go when it is viable, and how can they find your YouTube channel? Tell us how we can find you. Um, well, for the YouTube channel, just go to YouTube and put in Leland Sklar channel, L E L A N D S K L A R channel, and that'll come up. And there's a mountain. Uh, I mean, and every day I've done another song, showed the bass part, and then told stories about the process and um, road stories and all kinds of stuff. Today, I one of my favorite bass players in the world passed away. And oh. uh, so I did a little tribute to him. As, and when I would do interviews, they'd say, so who's your favorite bass player? And I'd go, uh, Reinetta Bragamoff. You I'd talked go, about him on the pocket, on the thing with me yeah, last year. Yeah, yeah. Well, he, he, he just passed away. He, he was the principal bassist with the London Symphony Orchestra. There's videos of he, and then there's some with he and his daughter, Alina. Um, who was like winning all the competitions as a classical violinist? She's like four years old. Um, and he was just one of these amazing families. And Reinet was probably in his fifties, I guess. Maybe he had a stroke, I think, in two thousand fourteen, maybe. And then he finally succumbed to it. He couldn't play anymore. He was teaching. Mm -hmm. But um, so today, I, I just did a tribute to him. I didn't do a song. I just talked about him and then played him. I just did a filmed him playing. But um, so go to my channel um, on Facebook. I'm just if I'm not thrown off. <laughs> I was going to um, say that's we uh, um, Yeah, I, I mean, I'm under Leland Sklar there on Instagram. It's so wait, you thrown off Facebook. Do they also throw you off Instagram because they're connected? Yeah, they haven't kicked me off of Instagram, but I got kicked off of Twitter. Um, so I started a new Twitter account and but I don't go there much because I'm as you can tell from this conversation, I'm long-winded, and to and to and to write snippets, to me, I just I, I to me it's just a waste of time. I'd like to be writing paragraphs and not, you know, these little things like the Einstein does from his gold toilet. Um, so, um, so, but on on YouTube, on 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 Facebook, I'm just under my name, and I and and it's all public. Um, I don't have like a private account or anything like that. So anybody can come there and comment and I get pant loads and I get people that are wonderful. So you get what you get mm -hmm. on Instagram. It's Leland dot Sklar. We're just trying to purge a couple of fake accounts that have shown up that are like Leland hyphen Sklar or mm -hmm. underlying slash. It's, it's really Leland period Sklar um, is, is how, that's the account that I, that I am. Everything else is fake. Um, and then uh, on the uh, on Twitter, I've I've got a I created an account called Spoonie Lee, um, <laughs> and it's because on One Man Dog, uh, James Taylor refers to me as Spoonie Lee Bl Blue Bone picking on a fretless bass, um, and so I just I somehow that came to my mind, and I thought I'm gonna leave my name, and maybe I can be a little more anonymous with Spoonie Lee, and not get kicked off again after you know, another rant. I mean, I, I, I try, I, I, I'm trying to really temper my rant, you know, my, they're not rants. I'm trying to be observant of what's going on. And I never expect people to agree with me that, you know, that's like people would say, Oh, it's another one of those libtards. If you don't agree, he's going to block you. I would never do that. You know, I, but I appreciate if somebody comes with a diverse opinion about something, but come to me with facts and knowledge. Don't come to me with Sean Hannity and and, and yeah, Tucker Carlson quotes and, and they stuff. come to my page and then they yeah. they start berating people. Then the, the, it gets nasty, and I do block yeah. people when yeah, they get. I, I, I those people I block immediately. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's because 
they're 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 there for a fight. Yeah. And I'm not gonna, I'm not going to play their game with them, so I get rid of them. But uh, you know, the, you know, when I grew up, I've always I've been a Democrat, but I'm really an independent. I really try to judge everything on its merit. And if somebody who was a conservative came to me and said, "Look, I really think on this thing," they might make me think differently. I really want I want to knowledge. I want to know what makes people tick and what makes things work. Mm-hmm. Um, everything, not everything. Like with this election coming up, as far as I'm concerned, mm-hmm. vote blue right across the table on this one. And there may not be the best people in some of the positions, but whatever they are, they're going to be better than what's there. And and to me, the the other side has become so profoundly toxic that um because i had a lot of friends i mean i was around through the goldwater period and nixon and you know and the bushes and all and all of that and there was you know a a lot of it i disagreed with but there was a a certain kind of understanding and civility that Mm -hmm. went with it and you could have dialogues with people now it's just become this completely toxic atmosphere and i just want them all gone i just want to purge the whole thing and start fresh and if it doesn't work, then you have another election coming up. In two years, you can get rid of senators that suck, you know, and stuff. And then in four years, if the if if Biden gets in, we can get to work. We the damage that's been done over these last years is well, oh. it, it's like it, it's like when Obama took office, he mm-hmm. was climbing out of this massive hole that that Bush dug. You know, it's not like he was starting on the playing field right. and then you could go with it. And who, and if Biden gets in or, you know, and Kamala Harris and they're in, they're going to be in, in they're going to be in a, a repair mode for most of their the presidency trying to fix what this guy's done because he's profoundly destroyed almost every norm that this country's ever known. And it's all for personal gain. The, uh, the prof, the, the prediction is that, by November, we're going to be in the throes of the worst stage of this pandemic. And we need Biden and Kamala to come in there so that January 20th, they shut down the goddamn country for three weeks and stop this stuff. Yeah, I agree. I agree totally. I mean, it's it's looming. It's right over our our heads. And um, and it's just not it's not being addressed because these people have other agendas. And it's all about them. And, it's all about uh, money. It's all it's about all money. It's all money. And when I see, mm-hmm. like, you know, like when when he puts Jared Kushner in charge mm-hmm. of the pandemic, I thought this guy isn't qualified to wipe his ass. <laughs> I mean, where did he come from? His father's in prison for all kinds of, you know, real estate shyster stuff. The guy's a slumlord. They're all scumbags. And if Ivanka wasn't that cute blonde. Man, you know she she is she is evil personified to me. This Did you see is- a little tiny snippet of film when Ivanka was walking over to introduce him at the convention, and she walked past Melania, and Melania smiles at her, and then she looks at the camera and goes, "Did you see that?" Yeah, yeah. it's classic. You know, I mean, m- melanoma is she's another piece of work. Though. You know, everybody kind of goes, "I feel sorry for her." No, she's a rotten piece of shit too. And she was all deeply into the birther thing about Obama and all that. And she's an opportunist. You know, she saw this dumpy, stupid asshole, rich guy and went for it. And then now she's here. Her parents are here. What other people who are more deserving of getting through immigration are being held up. Her folks are fast tracked through. And I mean, you know, and, and, you know, I don't even want to get into the Rose Garden and all the crap that's, you know, all this stuff. And what she wore to the convention. Oh. No, yeah, I mean, you know, here she is, you know, 
Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it, all I want to say is I pray to God that everything changes in November. I want to say thank you so much for inviting me back on your show. And I'll come anytime you need a, a filler. If I'm around, I'm happy to come and hang with you. you are, I, I, I love you. I love you to death. And you are just so special. And it's a real treat to be here with you all, all afternoon. Thank you so much, Lee. Everybody, Leland Sklar, go to his YouTube when his when his Kickstarter starts. Um, kick, it. Kick, I, it. kick that Kickstarter. I can't wait to have a copy of that book on my coffee table. I adore you. I love you as an artist, as a human. Thank you so much, Lee. Bye, <laughs> Bye everybody. See you soon.